I think this past week we've all been stunned a little bit by the tragic events that's been happening in our country. We had an event in Quebec, a soldier was killed, and then we saw what happened this week at Parliament. And I don't know if, I don't know if anybody of us could ever feel like we could ever be the same again after having that experience. And we heard our Prime Minister get up and talked about the importance of vigilance. How many actually listened to his speech? Yeah, very important message, I believe, to our nation. And believe it or not, I was actually working on this sermon before all these events happened, and I just went, wow, this is unbelievably timely. Because I am convinced that it's so easy to forget that we've been involved in a military conflict as a nation for a number of years now. You know, we've, we've been sending soldiers to Afghanistan. How many know that? And they've been fighting in Afghanistan. But, you know, we kind of forget these things. I mean, no, we just kind of, they're out of sight, out of mind, unless you're related to somebody or, you know, every once in a while we get a report or some tragedy and then we're reminded. But it, it seems like it's over there. And we're over here, right? It just, we're divorced from it. And then this last week we began to realize, you know, we're sending, you know, jets off and there's going to be, you know, more intensification of conflict. And, you know, we just kind of forget all about this stuff until tragedy strikes in Canada. And now we're a little bit disconcerted because, you know, the recognition is this could continue to happen. And I'm going to suggest to you it probably will continue to happen. And for some of us in the West, we think it won't happen here. But let me just point out to you something. We're living in denial if we think that never could happen to us. This is very real, folks. I think we gotta awaken. I think we've been sleeping for a long time. We, we need to hear what our prime minister says. We need to become vigilant. We need to awake to what is happening in our world and how that's gonna impact our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. But you know, having said all of that, I'm gonna say this. And if you study the Bible very carefully, you're going to discover something that whatever happens in the natural realm has already occurred in the spiritual realm. You need to understand that when Daniel was praying and there was, you know, praying for three weeks and he had not heard God's response and finally God came, he sent an angel to Daniel and he said, I heard you the very first day you started praying, but there was a conflict in the spiritual realm and until there was a prevailing happening in the spiritual realm, it, it, there was an impediment to what was about to happen in the natural realm. Finally, there was a breakthrough and the angel came and spoke to Daniel. What I'm suggesting to all of us today is you cannot understand what is happening in the natural realm if you don't understand it's already transpiring in the spiritual realm. There's a spiritual reality that we may not see with our physical eyes, but it's impacting the world in which we're living in and we need to understand that. It's at a higher level, and when we get this, and when we become spiritually awakened, when we become spiritually vigilant, then I think we're gonna see things happen in the natural realm that's gonna actually counteract what is happening right now in the physical realm. You know, Jesus talks about these things, and, and you know, the Apostle Paul reminds us of these things. Let me just tell you what Paul said in the book of Ephesians. We're gonna look at the Ephesians quite a bit this morning. It says, be, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I want you to know that what happened this week is part of satanic strategies. 
loves to have people live in fear. You know, and a lot of people overreact to things, but a lot of people underreact to things. We need to have a right response to what is happening. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is an interesting statement. This is not about what's happening only in the natural realm. We're not struggling against ideologies you know, that the society is focusing in on. I think there's something far deeper going on. Let me tell you what I think is happening. I think there are people in our country who are, you know, who are angry, who are frustrated, who are under the control of demonic forces. I'm going to point that out here in a moment. You're going to see it. And these people are embracing you know, ideologies that, are, that conflict with what I believe is what Canada is about. Democracy, freedom, those kind of values. And by the way, those values come from the scriptures and they come from Christianity. We need to know that. And so the enemy hates it when people are free. He hates it when you and I walk in victory. He hates it when we're experiencing an abundant life. He's opposed to those things. He wants to destroy us as human beings on this planet. He would love nothing better than to have families fighting and and conflict within nations, and he would love nothing better than conflict in our world. That's what he wants. And Jesus is opposed to that. He really is. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. This forum that I'm speaking at tomorrow at six o'clock, you know, the topic is, does religion bring conflict or peace? And one of the presenters is an atheist, and I'm sure they're going to say, listen, a lot of the wars in the world have been, you know, fought because of religious ideologies, and so they're going to try to put us on the defense. And I'm not going to respond that way. I'm not even going to try to defend the position, because I don't believe that's the issue. I, don't, I believe that's easy to say those things. I think it's easy to blame people and ideologies and all the rest of it. I'm going to talk about what the real problem is. And when we start talking about the real problem, it comes a lot closer to home. And you're going to see that. Even in my message today and tomorrow night, you'll hear it if you come. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So what we need to understand is that there's a heavenly realm. There's a spiritual realm. You know, we use the word heaven and we immediately think, you know, in the air, but In a sense, it's a spiritual realm and there's a conflict happening in the spiritual realm. It's not a natural conflict. It's a supernatural conflict. We need to know that. Then it says, because of this conflict, as believers, we're to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, by the way, is this a day of evil? Sure it is. You may be able to take your, or stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. I don't believe you and I need to capitulate in fear. I don't need, we need to overreact to things. I believe that we have a position that we need to stand on, and we're gonna see that. There's always been spiritual conflict in this life. And Derek Prince wrote a book entitled Lucifer Exposed, and he shares that believers are often living defeated lives. What I mean by a defeated life is a joyless life, a life where there's anxiety rather than peace, a life where they're discouraged rather than encouraged, a life where we feel defeated by the struggles that we're having and we're frustrated by what's not happening in our world. And I think a lot of people live in that realm and I think a lot of Christians live in that realm. I don't believe we're always experiencing what God intends for us. I think we're frustrated a lot of the times. And I think if we're honest, we'd say that's true. 
And what we need to realize is that Jesus said he had a purpose in coming. And he said the thief, which is another name for Satan, has only come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to its fullest. You can have abundant life, one translation says. We can live life with joy and victory and peace. Wow, isn't this amazing? And yet there's a, there's tension in our, in our situation because we have an adversary and we have an enemy. And by the way, Jesus had enemies and we shouldn't be shocked that there are enemies. And that's what the whole problem is. Why is there conflict? Because there's enemies. And why is there enemies? Because we have something called sin that was introduced into our world by Satan himself. And it was designed to destroy us and separate us from God and rob us of life and joy and peace and blessing. In both Matthew and Luke's gospel, we have a parable that Jesus begins to explain something of the nature of the spiritual battle that we are engaged in and how we can live this life in a victorious way. And like so many of his parables, Jesus is responding in answer to the challenge that's being posed to him. Jesus was challenged a lot. Does that surprise you? And you know what? It shouldn't surprise us that you and I will be challenged at times. And we need to understand it's going to come our way. And how are we going to respond to this? Well, let's take a look at the story, picking it up from Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. In other words, he had inability to speak. He couldn't see, he couldn't talk. Talk about a tough condition in life, Right? And the Bible says Jesus healed them so that he could both talk and he could see. And all the people were astonished and they said, could this be the son of David? Now when you and I hear something like that, it doesn't mean a lot to us. But let me explain to you, if you were living in the first century and you were a Jewish person, you would immediately understand what they were saying. Because the son of David, David was the king and David was anointed and all the kings were anointed and so the word Messiah this idea of someone coming that's sent by God who's anointed who would be an anointed leader who would lead the people of Israel out of their bondage and would be a deliverer and when they saw what Jesus had done in the spiritual realm when they saw the effect of what he did in the natural realm how a man who was now bound by demonic forces a spiritual force greater than himself who was had the inability to see and the inability to speak was now liberated and set free, the people began to get excited and said, could this not be the Messiah? See, that's what they were saying. See, how do you know this, Pastor? Look at the way the, the response was. But when the Pharisees, by the way, the Pharisees in in the first century, they weren't that big of a group. They, maybe there was 5,000 of them. They were a minority position, but they had unusual influence. How many know it's usually that way in life? You have a small group of people having a huge influence over the majority of people. The Pharisees were having undue influence. That's one of the reasons why Jesus kept attacking their position because he knew that they had undue influence. But when these guys felt they were losing the influence over the people, they were getting upset. And so the next verse it says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Luke says it this way, when Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute and the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. 
Wow, rather than praise God, well, some of them did, but some of them criticized Christ. Isn't that interesting? Doing a good thing, being criticized for it. That can happen, by the way. You can be doing the right thing, and people are criticizing you for it. Luke 11 says, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's doing this. Others, we're not quite sure. Marvin Pate, a, a biblical scholar, says their request of Jesus for a sign to vindicate him of satanic collusion ironically demonstrated that the ones who were partners, that they were the ones who were in partnership with Satan. In other words, by questioning Christ, they were the ones that were actually being used by the devil. That's what the scholar is saying. Now I want you to notice um, the, how Jesus handles this accusation. The Apostle Paul kind of describes what's happening in our world today. I want to do a little background here, and then we'll come right back into the story. He says this, as for you, the word you there is in the plural. See, you don't, in English, you can be singular or plural, right? But in this case, it's plural. Trust me, I looked up the Greek, tent, uh, the Greek verse uh, word there, and it's in the plural. As for you, he's speaking to the church, speaking to us collectively. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. That was our condition before we knew Christ. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. I want you to just circle that in your Bible, ways of this world. Because that's what we're dealing with today, the ways of this world. I'm gonna define that word in a minute. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who's that? Who's the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Satan. Satan. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That word at work means energizing. You know, some people go, I don't understand why people are doing the wrong thing. I say, well, you know, there's a spirit at work that's energizing people to do the wrong thing. And that as human beings, we, we're born into this world and we're born in a state of rebellion. We actually are defiant towards God. We're not just passive in our rebellion, we're active in it. We don't want anything to do with God. We don't want God to tell us what to do. You know, we want to do our own thing. And Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We've all had this problem. And there's some point we have to acknowledge that we have been in rebellion against God, and that's what repentance is all about. And we come into agreement with God, and we say, yes, I've been a rebel. I've done it my own way. You know, I'm singing Frank Sinatra's song, I've done it my way. And I want you to know, we may sing it, but it's not helping us, and eventually we discover there's a lot of negative things to living that way, and we finally come to Christ. It says, the world is a mentality, an outlook, a view of life without God. Now, you notice that expression. Let me go back there. It says, who followed the ways of this world, okay? It's really God being shut out. It's man himself viewing and organizing and controlling life, but it's all the idea of God is excluded. And we're going to hear this position tomorrow night. The atheist viewpoint is, A in Greek means no, theism means God, no God. They don't believe in God. They say no to God. Okay? But Ephesians 2.12 says this, remember that at that time, he's speaking to Gentiles who are non-Jews, now are now being grafted into the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. Remember, at that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. Remember, the world now is a 
a way of looking at life, okay? Without God and without hope in the world. Wow, what is Paul saying? That when we're living without God, we're in the world. We're not living as we're we're supposed to be living. Now, where do believers live according to Ephesians chapter one? Somebody should know that right off the top. Where are we living? We are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We are in a spiritual kingdom. Isn't this good? How many say this is good? God has translated or taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of his son, which is the kingdom of God. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so there's been a conflict all along between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. You know, one is ruling, and he's ruling over all the people who do not receive Christ, who are in a sense without God, without hope in the world. That's the condition. That's what Paul's teaching us here in the book of Ephesians. You go, I don't like this position, Pastor. I don't feel comfortable what you're saying. What am I saying is in the Bible. So you're not comfortable with the Bible. I'm just presenting the Bible's position. That's just your interpretation, Pastor. No, it's not my interpretation. Everywhere I turn in the New Testament, this position is being reinforced over and over and over again. So, Paul says that we're living a life apart from God. We're under the control of the kingdom of darkness. You know, Jesus said things like, you are of your father, the devil. I mean, those are pretty strong words. Isn't that true? No wonder Jesus got in trouble. He did say some things that got people up in arms. He did provoke people. Did you guys realize that? I would like to be told, you know, you're of your father, the devil. Got people excited. They didn't like to hear that. They thought they were serving God, you know. So, Jesus is now dealing with this accusation that's come against him. And I think that you and I can learn from how Jesus deals with conflict. I'm going to suggest to you that if you're walking with God, you're going to be living a life in conflict. You go, I don't want to live a life in conflict. I want to live a life in peace. Well, here's, here's what the scriptures teach. We are peacemakers. We're called to live at peace with people. Our recognition is it's not people that are the problem. It's not even that nasty neighbor. It's not that, you know, terrible boss. It's not that, you know, disobedient child. It's not that unresponsive spouse. That's not the problem. The problem is this principality, the spiritual force of darkness at work. We're wrestling not against flesh and blood. But what do we tend to do? We focus on flesh and blood. Isn't that true? Because that's the person that's pushing our button. So we identify them as the problem. But it's really, the Bible says, it's not flesh and blood. It's these principalities and powers. We need to understand that. So now, how can you and I deal with the conflict that's bound to come into our life the moment we say yes to Jesus, we're in your kingdom, we're walking with you, and all of a sudden we got an adversary. We didn't sign up for this enemy. Well, he's always been our enemy, folks, and when we weren't walking with Jesus, we were just in captivity. But now that we've been let out of his house and brought into God's kingdom, now we have this conflict going on. So how do we deal with it? Well, Jesus dealt with it in three ways. The first one is that we need to stand on the truth. Jesus explains his positions. We need to know where we're standing spiritually in order to handle the onslaughts of the enemy. Notice it says in Ephesians 6 that we're to put on the belt of truth. We need to know the truth. And when we don't know the truth and we don't understand who we are in Christ, we get blown away every single time. We live in defeat. So the first thing that Jesus out is points out 
that their accusations are illogical. Now I'm gonna just make a statement here. All sin is illogical. All sin is a form of insanity. You say, why is that, Pastor? Because all sin is to the detriment of yourself and to those you love. How many know that's not very bright? That's a form of insanity. I think sin is a form of insanity. We're destroying ourselves. We're alienating ourselves from the one who can help us, and that's God himself. We should not be surprised that the enemy of our soul would bring accusation against us. The Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Listen to what Revelation says. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accused them before our God day and night have been hurled down. What's Satan's role? He's an accuser. So he always loves to bring up accusation against us. That's his job. He likes doing that. Likes to make us feel bad. You know, how many like to be falsely accused of things? Anybody like that? You enjoy that? Of course not. Now that's Satan's job. Hey, be careful before you and I make accusations against people. We're not playing into his hand. That we're actually a tool into his hands. We better be careful, right? That should slow us down from talking. I don't want to be on his side. I don't want to be on his team. I don't, you know, it's like, you know, guy playing sports and scoring at the wrong end, you know? Helping the other team get points. I don't want to be doing that. How many say amen to that? I'm on the winning side. I want our team to win. I don't want to be scoring points for the enemy. Okay. Then it says they triumphed over him by what? The blood of the lamb. In other words, what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the word of their testimony, the fact that we're confessing that we're a believer. We're publicly confessing. They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're identifying. We're saying, Jesus, you are God. Whoa, that's a big confession. And then it's says they did not love their lives so much as they shrank back from death. In other words, we are giving our lives for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you're not a foolish person if you're willing to give everything you've got for the kingdom of God, because that's where you'll find life. But if, you're willing, if you want to keep your life in this life, then you'll lose it. Jesus said that. It's kind of an irony, but that's the way it works. Then it says here, Jesus raises the question, how can a kingdom against stand against itself when it's divided. Look at verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, let's stop right here, time out. Satan does not know your thoughts, only God does. And the fact that Jesus knew their thoughts says what to us? He's God, okay? You say, well, pastor, sometimes I have these thoughts. Now, how many have ever had a thought in your mind and you said afterwards, that was disgusting. Where did that come from? Anybody have that? And you were disgusted with it. You said, man, that annoys me. Anybody have that? Yeah. Well, you know what that is? That's not your thought. You will say, wait a minute, I thought it. No, listen to me. The Bible says that Satan has, he, he has, uh, what is it says? Fiery darts of the enemy. So he hurls this disgusting thought. And the fact that you and I go, that's disgusting suggest that that doesn't originate from us. So the devil does not know your thoughts, but he can attack your thoughts. Big difference. Everybody see the difference? He just wants to plant junk in your head, you know? And some of us are bottom feeders. You know, we listen to what he's saying, and so we go to weird movies, and we listen to weird conversations, and we're helping feed our mind garbage. It's true. Don't do that. Feed your mind good things, you know, because as your thinking goes, you're going to have, that's, that's going to affect how you live your life. So you want to have your mind renewed. How do you do that? By the word of God. So we start to think differently. 
Because if your attitude is wrong, how many know I just can't take when people have bad attitude? How many know what I'm talking about? Bad attitudes are not good. Anybody know that? How many know how do you get a bad attitude? Well, you're succumbing to the wrong thinking. Right? The fiery darts of the enemy. But you know, what really grinds the devil is when you have a hallelujah person. And the hallelujah person is those people that when he dumps the bad stuff, they just start memorizing, quoting scripture, and just praising God anyways. And it really fries him because he hates it when we worship God. Just pointing that out. So every time he gives me a nasty thought, I just start quoting scripture and worshiping God. I said, you want to play that game? I can play that game. You know, you want to make my life miserable? I'll make your life miserable. See? Okay. You're getting the point. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Here, I could just, I could go on and say, you know what, if we have a marriage and we're divided in our marriage, our marriage isn't gonna last. You know, if we have internal division in a church, the church won't last. If you have internal division in a nation, the nation won't last. Internal problems are significant issues. So you have to be a little careful when you're addressing problems that you're not becoming part of the problem. It takes a lot of wisdom to deal with problems, by the way. It sure does. Now, Jesus says, you know, why did Jesus say this? Because they, they said, it's because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. He goes, what a dumb thing. Why would Satan destroy himself? Duh. You know, that's illogical, Jesus is saying. So then we see that, you know, Jesus' opponent calls Jesus Beelzebub. Now, where does he come up with this name? I like what Warren Wordsby says. One of the heathen gods in the Old Testament is a guy by the name of Baal. Have you ever heard of Baal? Yeah, remember Elijah, the you know, confrontation there? Beelzebub, see? That's where you get Beelzebub. The name means Baal the prince, or it's translated Lord of the Heights, or Lord of the Flies. How many have ever read that book, Lord of the Flies? That kind of tells you who's instigating that. And then the last one, I really like, Lord of the Dung. I could use another word, but, you know, you know, that's kind of how I think about him. You know, that's the Lord, you know. He's the Lord of that, you know, Dung, right? But many students think it means Lord of the dwelling or Lord of the house. And this is the picture we have in this parable that Jesus is about to tell us. And each name that Satan wears teaches us something about his personality and his work. The name Satan means adversary, which means, you know, we have an adversary, your enemy. Uh, it means a slanderer because, you know, well, he slanders people. But here, I want to point out one other thing about the devil that you need to know. He's only one person and he can only be at one place at one time. So when people tell me the devil's bothering me and everyone's telling me this, I'm going, man, is that guy ever busy? He's been all over the planet. You know, it's almost like he's like, you know, he's almost painted like he's God. I want to tell you right now, you know, you're probably not being bothered by the devil. Now, you may be bothered by some of his minions called demons, but I'm going to tell you something. Most of us in this room don't warrant that kind of attention. I hate to tell you that. Just pointing that out. So, you know, we gotta, we gotta have a more biblical understanding of life. And so I'm trying to give you a picture. You know, God's here. He's everywhere present at one time. He's in our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. He's with us at all times. And here's the devil running like a Trojan all over the planet, you know, trying to create havoc, you know? And he's the Lord of the what? We won't say it? Okay, let's move on. I'm just pointing out what the Bible says. You know, let's get a right picture. 
You know, because I think we attribute too much to him. Not only is there an argument that Christ's opponents bring against Jesus, illogical, but it's also inconsistent. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, then he says, well, who are you guys driving demons out by? Good question. Good question, Jesus. Then he concludes his argument with the right conclusion as to the authority by which he's calling out the enemy. Notice verse 28. If, if, If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that if should be since. It's, you know, Jesus was casting out demons by the Spirit of God. Oh, by the way, that tells me he's not even using his divine prerogatives right here. He's just allowing God's Spirit working through him to do that. Hmm, interesting. This reminds me of a story in the book of Exodus, chapter eight. Remember these guys are kind of copying Moses and Aaron. They're doing, the, you know, they're, God's saying, hey, go over there and do this. I'm gonna send a plague on Pharaoh to let my people go. And you know what Pharaoh did? Ah, it's just a cheap magician trick. So he'd send his magicians in there and then they'd do the same thing, right? But then they got to a plague where we read here in Exodus eight where it says, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not since the gnats were on people and animals and they were everywhere. They just go, oh, this is not good. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is what? The finger of God. Now, I love that expression because, you know, in my mind, it's God's baby finger. Now, I know he's not human. I know he's a spirit. But, you know, it it just helps me to get an image. You know, God's deciding, I'm going to do something. I'll just move my little finger. We'll cause this major problem. You know why they do this? They use this anthropomorphical no, that's not the right word. Anthropomorphic. There it is. The anthropomorphic language. It's, it's using human terms that we can identify with. And they're basically saying, yeah, God has no problem doing this major stuff and it's no sweat off of God. I mean, he can pull this stuff at no big problem. Yeah, it gets done. And so what Jesus and these guys are basically saying is this is God's work. God's doing this. This is kind of good stuff, isn't it? Now, What I like about this story is that Jesus is doing this by the Spirit of God. And when Luke tells the story in Luke chapter 11, he kind of follows it up with a prayer. Now, I just mentioned this in my notes too. When our hearts are hard like Pharaoh's, we don't distinguish or recognize what God's doing. We just can't see it. Isn't that kind of where most people are? Just totally blind to what's going on. But then we read here in Luke, it says, and if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give whom? the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's related in the context of the story. So what is he trying to say to us here? Well, I think it's just really simple. When we commune with God in prayer, God's empowering presence comes into our life. And when God's empowering presence comes into our life, things begin to happen. And sometimes as Christians, you know, nothing is happening in our life because we're not availing ourselves of God's empowering presence. How about that? What do you think of that statement? You agree with that or disagree with that? I think sometimes we're just distracted doing our own little thing on the planet, running into our own little problems, and it's like all about us. I think the last words Patty said to me last night was she was telling me these interesting statistics, and she said, you know, 86% of the time, all we think about is ourself, and the other 14% is about other things. Could you imagine what would happen if we flipped that? What would happen in our lives? Just a thought. We'll move on to the second point. Second one is to stand on Christ's authority. How many know we're no match for the kingdom of darkness? Don't even try going up against him, you'll lose. You're doomed for failure. But, oh, I like these, the Bible has all these big but words. But, 
When we realize that we are in Christ and Christ has authority, then we have authority. Hmm. Look at verse 29, Matthew 12. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Oh, I like this picture. What he's basically doing is giving us an image. The only way you can take the goods out of a strong man's house is you gotta go in and take on the strong man and bind him up, and then after that, everything in his house you can pillage. And the picture that he's giving us here is that Satan has got a whole bunch of people held captive in his house, and when you and I, in the power of Jesus, go in there and take authority over what he is doing in their lives, what happens is those captives can be set free. Well, I like that. I really like that. You know, when Jesus comes, he's stronger than the kingdom of darkness. Satan's kingdom cannot stand against the kingdom of God. And so those who have been entrapped in his dominion are now able to be set free. Folks, reasoning doesn't work with people. You can try persuading people with arguments. It doesn't fly. But I'll tell you what, when God's spirit starts dealing with somebody, it's amazing what starts happening. Isn't that true? We need God's spirit to reveal truth to people, illuminate them. You know, this business of dealing with this stuff really comes as part of our commission. Listen to what Jesus said. When he had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. I've got to ask the question, is Jesus still has authority today to drive out demons and cure all diseases? Does Jesus still have that authority today? Well, of course he does. And how does he exercise that authority? through the church, through us. Amen? So we should be engaged in this. We shouldn't, you know, I think we're all freaked out about this stuff. And you know what happens in North America? We're just like, oh, this is bad. You know, it was amazing. We went to India, and this doesn't happen every time, but in the nine trips, the one time we were there, we're having this pastor's conference, and a whole bunch of Hindu people came into the service, which was great. But, you know, some of these guys, they're worshiping all these gods, like 330 million of them, and they do it every day. And after a while, you know, when you're practicing yoga and you're emptying your mind and you're letting the spirits fill you, eventually you have, you're full of that nasty stuff inside of you. Remember the Lord of the, you know what? And that's what's living inside of people. I'm just pointing this out. And so these people are walking around, and you can see it sometimes. You're walking down the street, you can look in their eyes, and you go, vacant. It's a vacant look, and I just go, that person's demonized. And we're in this meeting and all of a sudden the spirit of God is moving and you know the enemy always wants to discredit the work of God. So you saw a little manifestation happening in the service and the believers there are so used to this they don't even act like it's abnormal. Of course in our North American culture we'd be just freaking out like what in the world's going on? This is disruptive. They just walked over and said be quiet. And then the person would sit you know because they're sitting on the floor and they're just like they couldn't say a thing. And so my 12-year-old daughter, Rachel was 12 at the time, she's looking around, she's looking, she's going, Dad, 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 what's going on? Going, oh, they're just got some demons in there. <laughs> and they can't do anything. They're under the authority of Jesus. Oh. There's this one lady looking at me. I'll, I'll fix her. Okay. So the next time she's looking over at Rachel, I just went, my, my hand like that, and she just looked away. That was the end of it. Rachel looks, wow. You know, like, <laughs> well, you, you have to understand, we have authority. I just said, in the name of Jesus, turn away. You know, I didn't even speak to that woman. 
I just spoke my prayer to God and God took the authority over that person. See, we're acting like this is a big deal. It's not a big deal. Well, let's move on. I'm running out of time again. I have an innate ability to run out of time, huh? Okay. Remember the guys, I told the story today of the one guy that couldn't, the, the demon wouldn't come out, and so the disciples were all frustrated, and Jesus says, well, you know, this one comes up by prayer and fasting. So now you have to understand, why does our church pray and fast every three or four months for three days? I'll tell you why we do it. First of all, I think we need to be in a place where we're spiritually tuned up. Because you know what happens in life, and isn't this true of all of us? We're like our vehicles. We need a tune-up. You know, we start running for a while, and then eventually we get busy with life, and we got, you know, the kids got this problem. I got a dental appointment here. I got to work overtime there. Isn't it kind of what life works? We get going really fast, and pretty soon the spiritual life is diminishing while we're living this life. Nobody ever experiences that, right? But I'm hoping that every three or four months we take, you know, three nights to stop and just wait on God and seek God. What happens is it's not that, you know, by, by praying and fasting, we're meriting power. It's like, okay, I'm plugging into. No, no. It's, it's like we're opening ourselves up, saying, God, I'm so sorry I've gotten so busy and I've become a little desensitized and I'm not really pursuing you the way I should and I'm and I'm going to take time out. And you know, fasting is really difficult. You know, I don't enjoy it, so I always ask God for help. But have you discovered how much time we spend around food? You got to get up and prepare it. You eat it and clean it. And you do this three times a day. And at the end of the day, you didn't realize how much time you spent around food. How many know that's true? We're consumed with food, believe it or not. But if you spend the whole day and you don't have any, no, no preparing, no eating, and no cleanup, you've got a lot of extra time on your hands. That's my experience. And most of us are going, yeah, but I can't get my mind off a of food pastor. <laughs> that just tells you how much of a slave we are to it. But here's the idea. You just say, Lord, yes, I'm hungry. Yes, I'd like something to eat. And yes, my mind wants to go there. But I've decided to determine in my life to just spend this little time with you waiting on you. And you know, something starts happening. God can start speaking to us and start downloading some good things. We get our Bible out, we're reading, and the Spirit of God starts talking to us. And by the time, you know, three days of this is over, you know, you feel like a brand new person. You just feel like you're really reconnected with God. You're ready to take on the world. And about four months later, you need to do it all over again because, you know, it's just so easy to drift. No amens, but that's the truth. Now, notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 12, 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So what is Jesus basically saying there? There's no neutrality. In the, in the natural world, we have places like Switzerland who say that they're neutral, right? In the spiritual realm, there is no neutral. If you're not with Jesus doing his will, gathering people into his kingdom, what does Jesus say you're doing? Nothing. No, you're doing something. You're scattering. You're actually impeding what God wants done. And you know, I'm going to say this. Sometimes as Christians, we get in God's way. We get in God, we start impeding. We start blocking what God wants to do. We just think, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, but are you gathering? Well, no, I've been busy doing this, that, and the other thing. No, you're impeding what God wants done. He's in the business of gathering. 
And I tell you, there's a lot of people that are perishing on our planet right now, and we're busy, you know, doing our own thing. It was not on our radar screen. Amen? And I'm just pointing out to you that we have a job to do. And when we leave this other stuff unattended, what starts happening is a void comes into the picture. Let me move on to my last point here. I could say a lot, but I'm going to move on because I'm running out of time. Third way of dealing with conflict is seen in our commitment to Christ. What happens to people who are set free and then they don't really pursue what God has for them? I think there's unique dangers. Take a look at the story. Look at verse 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I'm going to return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, slept clean, and put in order. Do you know it's possible for people to deal with issues of sin in their life or addictions in their life or moral issues in their life? And they go, I can do this. I can handle this. But listen to what the demon says. Oh, empty. Do you think we're a match for the kingdom of darkness? No way. As a matter of fact, he goes, you know, if I got kicked out, the next time around, I'm going to make it more difficult. I'm going to go find seven dirtier spirits and have them join me in the house. That's what it says. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Hmm. Listen to what scholar Leon Moore says. But if it's empty, it's desolate. The man has evidently been busy on himself so that the place vacated by the Spirit may now be said to be swept and tidy. Jesus is talking about a pleasant moral reformation, but with the man thinking that he's still in control of himself and with no reference to the Spirit of God. The man is empty. He's opened invasion from all kinds of evil. In fact, the original Spirit comes back with reinforcements. That's a scary thought. And you know, I'm going to close with this. He's not just talking about an individual. Let me go back and read this. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus came. Jesus was there. Can you imagine God in the midst of these people? And they killed them. The God who they said they worship, they crucified. Disconnection. Disconnected. How many see it? That was pretty disconnected, wouldn't you say? He says, it's going to be worse with this generation. Do you know what happened with that generation? Rome destroyed Jerusalem. They went into a high state of rebellion and were totally wiped out. Very nasty scenario happened. I read the fall of Jerusalem. Don't make that your bedtime reading. Warning. That was an intense book. I read that, I went, unbelievable. They were fighting amongst themselves. You know, if the Jews had fought with, with each other, they could have defeated the Romans. They were literally, physically killing each other while they were under siege and starving. They were burning up their own food. You say, that's irrational, illogical. I go, that's what they did. I've read the story. It's mind-boggling. Folks, this isn't just a warning to us as individuals. This is a warning to all of us in Canada right now. Where is, our, where is our culture moving towards, God or away from God? Whose fault is that? Our fault. Our fault. No, no, my fault. 
Until I take ownership of the problem, nothing's going to change. That's my argument tomorrow night. <laughs> they don't know this. They're not going to like this. Because the question they ask is, well, why do we have war? And I says, that's the real question. And my answer is, because we're all sinners. And until we take ownership of our problems, nothing changes. It's so easy to blame people. <laughs> we do that all the time. Matter of fact, that's the original thing that happened in the garden, right? They sinned, and what did these guys do? Adam goes, God, it's the woman you gave me. It's not just the woman, it's the woman you gave me. He wasn't just blaming his wife, he was blaming God for the problem. Now, that takes a little audacity, wouldn't you think? You're the problem, God. But we do the same thing. Oh, why doesn't God do this? God goes, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? What am I saying to us this morning? I'm saying we're in a major conflict. It's primarily spiritual in nature, though we're seeing it played out on a natural level. And most of us, we hear the prime minister talk about vigilance, and what do we do? Yeah, good thing. Man, get in order, get the security, get these military guys, beef it up, prime minister. Do what you gotta do. Yeah, go for it. And you know what? We don't think it has anything to do with us. Meanwhile, God is saying, the problem is actually a spiritual problem. And what are you doing about it, Pastor Paul? What are you doing about it, Livingstone's Church? Oh, we're just busy living our life, enjoying the fruits and the benefits of being a Canadian. But some of those fruits and benefits are going to stop flowing one day because we were not vigilant. Are we hearing? See, I honestly believe that we can do something about it. What do you think we can do, Pastor? I think we can storm the gates of heaven. I think we can take spiritual authority over the position of darkness. I think we can say, you know what? We refuse to allow our city to perish. We could say we refuse to allow our kids to perish. We refuse to allow people to continue to live in perversion and sin. We refuse to do that, and we're gonna take authority over the powers of darkness and do something about it. Because all the arguments in the world aren't going to change people's minds. But let's face it, if they have a face-to-face -face encounter with Almighty God, if there's conviction of sin in their hearts, there will be true repentance. There will be transformation in our country. And if we sit back and say, well, who's going to bring that on? We are. And I am just crazy enough to believe that we can do it with God's help. I have this deep conviction that the people I'm looking at could change our country. You can do it. We gotta get serious about this. Is God speaking to you right now saying, hey, you need to step up to the plate. You need to start crying out to God. You need to start fasting and praying. You need to say, we're gonna take authority and not allow our families to be destroyed. We're not gonna allow our city to be taken over by violence and drug abuse and prostitution and all these evils in our city. And we just sit back and say, well, we'll just hire more police officers. That's the natural thinking. And it doesn't work. We do it all the time. It's not working, it's getting worse. And God's going, can't do anything. And even if these guys clean up the house, if they don't have Christ coming back into that house, what's gonna happen? 
That spirit's going to go out and find seven more vile spirits. The thing is going to be worse than it was before because morality does not change society. A spiritual transformation does, and it only comes as God's people humble themselves and begin to pray. Let's stand this morning.